Hi, everyone. Derek here. Uh, we recorded this episode on January 28th, 2017 in the morning, just as the news was breaking about the effects of Donald Trump's executive order, which banned refugees for 120 days and all citizens from Iraq, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen for 90 days from entering the U.S. Um, as the events of, of that weekend unfolded, Kyle Terrell and, all, and I, um, we all agreed that we should re-emphasize something that we only mentioned in passing during our conversation, which is that uh, for, the, for those of us who believe that this order was too broad or hastily implemented, unethical, or even illegal, um, we're not advocating that theoretical discourse can replace concrete material activism. It really can't. Um, at the same time, we also believe that talking through the nature of border control and the historical conditions and practices that led to U.S. policy helps to inform, direct, and refine how we resist. Um, we hope that theory and activism can work together to sort of improve each other. And we also hope that our discussion here will show how games can help us better understand the ongoing debate about the origins, practices, histories, and ideologies present in border control, both in the U.S. and around the world. If you feel that we've left out an important perspective on border control and immigration, as always, feel free to reach out to us through uh, email or Twitter, both of which can be found in the show notes. Uh, and now, I know that's a bit heavy to start the episode, so I want to give to you this, this a cappella duet by Kyle and I, our rendition of the, th of the theme song of Papers, Please. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Scholars at Play, a podcast dedicated to the critical discussion of games and their place in society and the Academy. Uh, my name is Derek Price. I'm the only one not dancing right now. Oh, Terrell was not dancing. My name so, is Terrell Taylor, and now I'm looking at Derek awkwardly for calling out that I wasn't dancing. What? You were. You were dancing, though. Uh, it, see, but now everybody knows that. Oh, that's true. All right. So it turns out I was just the only one dancing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was all. I was just trying to give you some smokescreen for that. I, I'm Kyle Romero. He is Kyle Romero. And uh, this is episode two. We're back. It's been a little while. Um, how are you guys feeling? I feel terrible, Derek. <laughs> the world is really crappy right oh, now. Oh, well, you know, we're going to, you know, solve it right here, actually. <laughs> it's going to stop being terrible after we're done recording. You know, every, waking up every morning and watching the news, it's, you know, there's this meme floating around. It's like, you know, Captain Picard, damage report, and then the news starts. Um, yeah, my, my wife has taken it as her sovereign duty to inform me every time that the Trump administration does something that might not be received so well. So I get like 15 to 25 emails a day now. I was going to say, that seems like that would be exhausting <laughs> on her part. Um, That's what she does. <clears throat> no, uh, so we're here. We're back. We've got another episode for you. Um, this one is uh, surprisingly timely. Uh, we planned this... We did, we did sort of plan this episode. We'd been talking about Papers, Please a little bit, um, even back in November, but we definitely planned it in December uh, post-election, uh, which, uh, Pre God. Pre-election. Well, we, we, right, so, yeah. we, right, pre-election. Um, and, you know, God, I keep thinking about, like, how we recorded several days before the election and yeah. how we were just living in such a different world. And we were all saying, like, let's just get this over with, you know, so we can move yeah. on. Little yeah. did we know little did how we know. good we had it, right? Yeah. 
one point you want the game to be over, you just can't wait to beat it. And <laughs> right. It's like, hey, can we press the reset button? Yeah. <laughs> Get a little A B start select action going. Yeah. Well, the game is literally over now. So. <laughs> <laughs> wait, what happened to the cheat codes? Like, <laughs> what are the cheat codes for skipping this part? Um, so, so we're we're talking about this episode is called Borders and Rituals in a game called Papers, Please, um, and. You know, we we picked this one because we felt like we were having a conversation about this before we started recording. Um, there's all sorts of work that needs to be done right now, uh, and this is obviously, I, you know, I was joking before. This is literally not going to solve anything, but it will. It is. It is. I still think like important work to be to be thinking about um, things like how border control works. Um, and, and working through cultural objects that deal with that. And I think that, that Papers, Please is such a timely game once again. Uh, I remember when it first came out, so 2013 it first came out, and people were talking, uh, you know, there was still the migrant crisis happening in Europe at that point, the immigration crisis. Um, so this has always been in the background of this game, and I think ever more uh, increasingly, especially here now in the U.S., it's, uh, it's an important game. So. Yeah, so we're we're talking about like I like I mentioned we're talking about Papers Please. That's a game by Lucas Pope made in 2013. Um, we're also going to be uh, looking at two sort of texts to help us get into this game. Um, the first one is a, a review by Kyle uh, Rui Craverinha. Perfect. We had to talk to our Portuguese friends to pronounce we did. that properly. We did, and we wanted to get it right. Um, and so uh, he he wrote a review of the game. On his on his uh, former blog, I believe, called Video Game Utopia, the the title of that review is called Passage Denied: A Papers Please Review. Um, so we'll start off with that, and then we're also going to talk. Kyle, what's the what's our other text that we're uh, the at? other text is by a historian. Mm-hmm. What's up, uh, Adam <laughs> McEwen, uh, who's a professor at Columbia University? It's a small place you probably never heard of. Um, it's an article that's published in the AHA called uh, The Ritualization of Regulation, the Enforcement of Chinese Exclusion in the United States and China. Right. Adam McEwen is an immigration scholar. Uh, for those of you who don't know what the AHA is? Oh, the American Historical Association. There it's we go. It's kind of like if you're a historian, you're a member of the AHA. So there we go. Cool. It's a big, yeah. big journal. Yeah. The AHA so, is the name of their journal. Yeah. So um, we're going to get right into it, and we're going to start a little bit just by uh, – we want to introduce the game itself. We held out on you guys a little bit too long, too long last time. So uh, – Got to keep them in suspense, yeah. you know? <laughs> Terrell, do you want to start us off and, and, like, give us a sense of, like, what this game is about? And we'll sort of jump in and help. So the basic premise of the game, and I think some of the names are going to slip by me, is that you are essentially working at a border and looking over the documents – for people who are trying to immigrate into a country, uh, the general theme and I guess texture of the way they sort of frame everything is that we're supposed to get, think or supposed to, given to believe that these countries and the migrants are supposed to resemble Eastern European identities, yeah. Soviet bloc. Glory mm-hmm. to Arstotska. Yeah, yes. Ar- yeah. I so I say Arstotska. Oh, Arstotska. Okay. I said Hui, so you can pronounce that. Uh, right. I don't know. I mean, it literally doesn't it's exist. It's probably like Arstotska. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. sorry. Glory um, to Arstotzka. And the general premise that you're given, and glory to Arstotzka, or however it is that you want to say <laughs> Let's it. Let's all pronounce it differently, I think. <laughs> Multipli- we, we need multiplicity yeah, that's, now that's more than ever. Right. Um, I think it, it, it's easy to underplay, I think, the way that the game uh, focuses on the nation state as such mm-hmm. uh, and the principles of the nation, the need to defend this nation, uh, so on and so forth, from... Uh, 
those who would do it harm, those who are not here properly or mm-hmm. under the correct circumstances, so on and so forth. And thus, the set of the mechanics that the game really enforces is, okay, here are these set of papers, here are these things that you can sort of look over, there are ways to examine them, There are there's a specific mechanic to detect discrepancies, and as the days and as the game progresses, those rules change. There are different things that you're looking for. I think in the beginning, they say specifically, we do not accept any quote-unquote foreigners. Mm-hmm. So there's no foreigners whatsoever. So that's a pretty simple mechanic to enforce. If they've got the passport, then they let them in. Then they allow foreigners, and then that requires a whole different sort of review of, okay, what are those proper documents, so on and so forth. And then making sure that a document is quote-unquote official by its um, expiration date, by notifications, date of birth, so on and so forth. And these escalate to eventually, I believe, there are moments, and maybe these are way later in the game, but body cavity searches and mm-hmm. review, seeing images of people working through scanners, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So all of this is sort of escalates to a particular point, and the game ramps up in the sort of amount of information that you're supposed to handle. But the other part of this that's also important to think about is that you receive a certain amount of money, I believe, per person you yeah. let in. Yeah. Per person processed, isn't it? Yeah, per person <coughs> processed. Yeah, so, so you like you, whether you deny quickly, or accept, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, and that money then is essentially what you have to use to pay the bills, pay for heat and uh, what is assumedly a very cold place, uh, <laughs> yeah. pay for medicine for your family. Which may or may not be a Soviet republic. <laughs> right, exactly. No judgment. <laughs> uh, rent, medicine, so on and so forth. And it gets very, 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 very tight very quickly, and your family has uh, increasing needs as people get sick. And so the major challenge is to sort of balance between uh, trying to keep everything on the up and up with managing that, but also trying to let enough people in so that you essentially get the money that you need. Yeah. And and so that sort of like broad sort of structural, uh, those limitations that are placed on you that like create a certain level of tension uh, in the game is also reinforced uh, at the micro level in each of in the gameplay. So um, when you're like the game is sort of broken up into days, that's like the unit of play. And you go through a sort of fictional 12 hour work day, which is really something I actually never figured out how many minutes it is. It's probably not more than 10, mm-hmm. 10 minutes or something like that. Right. So so you, you're trying to pro- maybe 12 minutes, who knows, maybe it's a, a minute, an hour or something like that. But um, you're trying to process as many people as you can. I never averaged more than like 10 or 12 like that was as much as I ever got game yeah (laughs) I gotta start being more efficient question mark well that's the thing is the the mechanic of the game at some point maybe it's just for me because I was a horrible person it encouraged me to be like as quick as possible right Right. because I was like my mom is dying in my house you know she's sick she needs food she needs heat she needs medicine so I was like okay cool this guy doesn't have the you know passport you could detect discrepancy and try to get him to give you the passport, or mm-hmm. you can just decline him. Right, exactly. And that's fine. Right. And then, of course, like later, they, they create another rule, like Terrell was mentioning, these escalating rules. Like, eventually, you have to give a reason for why you're denying them. But in those early stages of the game, you can just like, nope, sorry, you don't got it. So, Damn. see you later. Um, but but anyway, so the game is sort of, uh, it has this very sort of, uh, it's it's set in 1982, and it looks like, 1982 through this like sort of yeah, very if it was like 64 bit exactly yeah. right <laughs> you could it's believe an important thing to recognize <laughs> the graphics really are I think intentionally retro absolutely right? mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and so there's this graininess there's a sort of pixelatedness uh, which you see in the documents but also in the in the person as they sort of pop up in your window um, but uh, you know another layer of tension that the game creates is a sort of management of your desk your workspace so you have like a, a larger space to the bottom right 
where you can sort of move documents to look at them closer. And then to the left, there's a little fictional sort of uh, booth where the person comes in front of you and gives you your documents. You have to really, like, it sounds strange and, like, not interesting, but it ends up being very important how you manage having your rule book open, yeah. where you put the passport, how you compare the documents, because you just don't have enough physical space to uh, actually, like, look at everything all at once and then make your decision and then hand it all back. So, um I've I've heard reviews of uh, Papers, Please as something of like an anti-game. Like it kind of took the basic principles of gaming. Like you're a character, you have, you know, desires and you want to achieve them and you do that in the world <clears throat> as taking instead the idea of Papers, Please is you're like a faceless bureaucrat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who your entire needs are dictated by the outside world, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the gameplay is very much like close reading of texts. That's yeah. not what you traditionally associate. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good game. Yeah. That's that's good. I hadn't thought of that before. But it's fascinating. It's an, yeah. it's an amazing game. It's sold, I think, over 2 million copies as yeah. of now. So. Yeah, there's something interesting to the, the un-game or anti-game uh, portion of it. And maybe this is something we could revisit in a later episode or maybe talk about it however it fits into our conversation to come up. But it's been lumped in with a lot of games that are games about work. And people have talked about The Witcher this way. I think some people have talked about Red Dead Redemption this way, that the work vibe to the game or the work grind that you end up sort of falling into in those games mm-hmm. is not can be sort of a, unappealing, but it seems to be what the, this game in particular is trying to take up. Yeah, so. absolutely. And and I think we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more as we go on here, certainly. Um, I'd love to move us into uh, our first text here. Um, the, As the, though the game was not a text. Uh, ooh. Oh, wow. Structure. <laughs> From the English major. <laughs> yeah, dang. There's no outside text. <laughs> We're all, all right. in text. <laughs> the best is the debate between All right, like, Mr. Text. Nar- narratologist. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Chill with that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I like sorry, the debate Kyle. between text and context, and it was like, mm. oh, they sound the same. Let's oh. talk about this forever. Yeah, in- right. <laughs> Just like you put ology at the end of Udo, <laughs> Nara, and then you've got a debate. Dology. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so let's take let's take a look at, quickly at Hui Javerinha's review of the game. So that was in 2014. Um, he published that on his blog. Um, I found this through. I just want to do a quick plug through uh, a site called Critical Distance. Uh, they're fantastic. They sort of aggregate quote-unquote good writing about games online. Um, something to check out. Uh, probably something for later. In the Derek is not getting paid by them. I'm actually <laughs> paying them. <laughs> <laughs> kind of an inverse relationship. Yeah, I, it's like uh, I'm a Patreon member. Now it sounds like it's bragging. But, uh, Sorry, we're not all as rich as Derek with his German money. Just throwing my $5 around left and right. Willy-nilly. Uh, it, it's a great resource if you're looking for sort of interesting writing about video games. Anyway, um, so let's, uh, Kyle, let's uh, let's all sort of work through a summary of what this article is working you on. Just because I can pronounce hui, right? Is what <laughs> I mean, <laughs> although, of course, we're going to get, like, letters from Portuguese and Brazilian people. Like, you butchered that you terribly, in fact, it. insultingly. Yeah. <laughs> we I, tried, I, though. I think the cool really thing about uh, hui's article, uh, Passage Denied, um, is that I think it takes a kind of lead from that Clint Hawking thing we read in the last episode where... It is a review in a sense, like he mm-hmm. gives an excellent description of the game it, and probably way better than we did. So if you want to read like the first two pages of his review, go there. But he gets into some real kind of like critical analysis of the game. It's very short. It's like probably under 1500 words, you know, 2000 yeah. words. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he gets some good criticism. He talks about what the game does as opposed to like what you do in the game. Um, 
Yeah, and I think he kind of presents a really good way to, of critically analyzing the game, um, right. albeit a short one. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he he's he's sort of uh, this is this is still early, I think. I mean, the the, the American indie game scene t- took off very recently. I mean, the last yeah. six, seven, eight years. Um, and so he's really uh, he's happy that this game is doing sort of it's pretty calls it personal, expressive, and, and and uncompromised by sort of commercial goals. Um, that's sort of his take on on this game. And I've got a quote I'd love to to read here, which I think sort of this is his sort of main point on the game. And he says that uh, Lucas Pope's game is driven by a need to design games whose very systematic properties are meaningful enough that they can be explored semantically by the player and that uh, he sees the game as inscribed with rhetoric on real issues. So there's a lot of there's a lot of technical words in there. Um, but I, I, I think to, to rephrase it, um, Rui sees uh, Caverinha sees um, sees the game as doing it wants to advance some sort of point. I think it, it, he sees this game as really like making some sort of argument, making a rhetorical point and he's sort of referencing Bogost and that kind of his his idea of rhetoric uh, and procedure. But um, we don't need to necessarily get into that stuff. And if it wasn't but, apparent, uh, Rui Cravadinha is in academia. He is. So, yeah. <laughs> he's getting his PhD. I think it's actually in computer studies. I looked mm. it up. Okay. Uh, but I think he already got an MA in English, I believe. Yeah. So he, he's very good with the terminology. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's 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 well it's well done. Um Terrell, what were some other takeaways that you had from this? I think the big takeaway, and he sort of leaves this towards the end, uh, is the discussion of the way that the game can become fun. Yeah. Um, which to be honest, I think is this is a good piece, but in maybe it's just the, the critical eye I've developed over in the, the humanities, um, but um, English specifically. I find that his point about the sort of difference between commercial games, um, say uh, Fez and Super Meat Boy are the ones that he points out, uh, versus games, well, not commercial games, but indie mm-hmm. games the, that rely on commercial yeah. sort of values versus games that try to do something different like this, is then sort of at odds with the idea that this game can become fun, that there's something about right. the mechanics that can sort of function procedurally. Um, but to, more to his point, uh, the point that he wants to sort of, that he illustrates there is that in becoming fun and sort of you know trying to achieve efficiency through this process of managing these documents and uh, reaching a point where you're playing within the rules but also making enough money to uh to have your family survive and to live as comfortably as one can, that that becomes fun to the point where you're missing the kind of dehumanizing, the um, bureaucratic, the sort of soulless element to it. Mm -hmm. And that as you miss that, the game is missing opportunities to sort of really evoke how emotional and, well, the real weight and gravity of the situation. Sure. Is what he's sort of arguing. Yeah. I think part of that is, you know, he presents... uh, there's kind of two approaches to playing the game, right? You can play the moral way. You can, you know, do it, you know, you let in, there's a bunch of cases really early on in the game, but, you know, a uh, person will come to you and he gets through. And he says, my wife is coming after me, you know, just to let you know. The wife comes and, like, she doesn't have the right papers. So, like, are you going to break up this family, you know? Um, and so the moral, re- you know, the moral way, you know, pretty beating you over the head with it, right? But, like, let the woman in, be with her husband, uh, but then you get a fine, Right. That's the way life works. Or you can be like the ruthlessly efficient way. Um, similar to Bioshock in this case, like I kind of did both, you know, like, like when something really swayed me emotionally, I was like, okay, but also 
only when I hadn't hit my two penalty per day <laughs> limit, right? So right. once you exceed your two penalties for the day of messing something up, you start getting fined. Mm -hmm. And so there were several cases where I was like, I haven't gotten a penalty yet. I've let eight people through. I can let this nice man through. He seems right. fine. Um, but the realities of the game kind of butt in. So, you know, obviously, short article, Rui can't do everything. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it is a little more nuanced, maybe, than he might be giving it credit. That you, yeah. you do have a kind of space in between, like, the, the, the brutal mechanics of bureaucracy, getting a little too Weberian here, um, <laughs> and your kind of own emotional place as the gamer. Yeah. yeah I, would, I would totally agree with that. I think... Uh, I think he, you know, he's very, he, I mean, we, and we should be, I, I think maybe the tendency is to really just enjoy this game. I, I think it, it does, like, the. to a certain extent, I see a little bit of what it means, because it really is fun to play. And, like, once you start to realize how to play this game, and, like, you figure out strategies for being efficient, you can really get sucked up into that sort of fun process. Um but at the same time, I think, uh, you know, I think maybe he slightly overemphasizes the, the extent to which it is a black and white sort of really, um, like, no nuance in that sort of ethical yeah. level of, like, you are either going to be bad or you're being going to be good. I mean, you know. Uh, but one, one, the other point I think that he makes that's really important for us to, to note here, which is um, also I think maybe his a uh, little bit of a stronger point, is the idea that uh, this game... Uh, so Papers, Please really has this, as we mentioned before, this Soviet aesthetic, Very um, this Soviet iconography, um, which is, it, you know, his, his argument is basically that someone might look at this game and go, huh, yeah, I agree, uh, uh, fascism is really bad in those other countries like North Korea or, uh, I'm not going to say any other countries because I don't. <laughs> want to throw shade at other countries but like so any 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 country that anyone would use as like an example either contemporarily or historically is like that is the bad country and we're nothing like that so like the aesthetic maybe gives people an out a little bit too much to say uh yeah i agree with your point fascism is bad i've read 1984 too and 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 <laughs> uh but but that's not happening here um and i yeah, think and he says it, it doesn't open up the space for not only, so I mean, you know, Soviet Union, is it a left-wing dictatorship? Is it fascism? Is it totalitarianism? Right. You know, we don't have to get into that debate. Um, I can and we, and we never, we never excellent books on it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, but I don't think we ever really get a sense of what Arst Arstotska is. No. Like, it, no. besides that Soviet iconography, we really do never know, you know, and even the rebel groups that we'll talk about in a little bit, um, it's not even clear what kind of politics they have either. Mm -hmm. um, so, sorry, but anyway. Yeah, and so, you know, we don't have to get into that, but, like, part of, I think, Rui's argument is um, the idea that you are, like, you kind of get the sense you are in a totalitarian state, you know, where, whatever shape it may be. And so maybe, you know, you could then redirect your criticism from the Soviet Union to a North Korea, you know, or, right. you know, other countries in the world that are operating like this. Um, but he says you can you couldn't really critique someone like the United States, which right. we'll get into. Yeah. As you know, <laughs> like, you know, obviously very exclusionary immigration laws yep. uh, based around border control in very similar ways. Um, of course, I think we disagree is kind of the conclusion yeah. and why we're kind mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. going to juxtapose McEwen in a right. couple minutes. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so just just noting that point that like, yeah, actually, I and I, I think this is a fair point taken. Basically, that the, the game may sort of allow some some of that. Uh, you can sort of escape this the the most powerful conclusions you could draw from the game. You might be able to sideline those a little bit. And something that I thought he would mention, but isn't, is actually why he places this historically. 
you know? Yeah. So that, I think that would actually help is hmm. help uh, uh, Kravadinia's point is by saying, for some reason, putting this 35 years in the past mm-hmm. right. does something for him. You know, it's it, it's in the Cold War, maybe. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, you know, what it is. But the countries are all made up. So why right. do you have to place it historically, right? right. Like, why put mm-hmm. that kind of distance? Yeah. And I think that's actually a pretty strong reason for that he's... Uh, Lucas Pope was was trying to kind of place this into a Soviet context yeah. more harshly, but mm-hmm. you know we're academics, <laughs> and I believe in like the inherent goodness and intelligence of people. I'm sure you can separate yourself from the iconography, <laughs> iconography mm-hmm. enough to understand that absolutely border policing exists outside of the Soviet Union. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So you know what? Let's move into uh, this McEwen um, article. And Kyle, this was your suggestion. I think it was a fantastic one. Um, the title Thanks. is. Ritualization of Regulation, the Enforcement of Chinese Exclusion in the United States and China, again, by Adam McEwen in, in 2011. Um, Kyle, why don't you take the lead on just giving us a, like, let us know, like, what's the central sort of gist? Which, what's the takeaways here? What would so you say? do you mind if I give a little background? Please go ahead. background. So for, for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm an immigration scholar. So I brought in notes today, um, the most shortened notes I could get on the history of immigration law in the United States from the founding of immigration law, federal immigration law in 1882 to the present. It, it is two pages long. So I'm going to kind of condense that as much as I can if you don't want like a 30-minute lecture by me. My students get enough of that. But basically McEwen is talking about this thing called the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is passed in 1882. Um, historians uh, look back to that as the start of kind of modern federal immigration policy. Because I'll do a pop quiz for you guys. So Ooh. it's 1850, uh-huh. right? Let's say you are some poor uh, farmers living in Germany, right? Uh-huh. And you hear about this great place called the United States. Yeah. And you want to travel there. Uh, you take a boat. You get there to New York. You get off in the harbor. What happens to you? Mm. What kind of systems do you have to go through? That's a really good question. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I would say 1852. Let's say the 1850s. You know, 1850s. Terrell, what do you think? Do you have any? Thoughts? You know, like, are there? You know, like, is there a wall? Is there? You know, border patrol people or the customs officers? Are there people who kind of checking your papers and stuff like that? You know, I want to say there's. You got to check in with someone. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. The answer is no. Okay. So there's there's no kind of, you know, uh, New York sometimes would stop ships out at sea and send out someone to kind of like check that no one was sick or, you know, had disease or anything. But for the most part, if you came to the United States before the 1880s and 90s, you just walked right in. Hmm. You know, you could walk through any harbor, you could get right in and you could become a citizen right away. Wow. Right. Um, the good old days, you know, like <laughs> dysentery and stuff. Um, obviously, you know. Certain people couldn't walk right in. You know, the fact that you're German and white had a lot to do with it. Uh, But before 1882, there's no federal um, oversight of immigration in the United States. And so what you get in 1882 is a passage of this Chinese exclusion law, which is supported pretty much solely by uh, people in California, nativists in California. And um, they say that they want, you know, people at the borders, particularly in San Francisco, but... Also in the other big har- uh, harbors, so you know uh, New York too, um, to stop uh, poor Chinese laborers. Uh, the kind of grossly offensive term is coolie, mm. which means like day right. laborer yeah. um, or day worker. It's a bastardization of Chinese, um, and it's super offensive. So I'm going to try to not use it as much. I did air quotes for anyone <laughs> wondering at home. And you so can just imagine the important thing is this: put a federal, you know, space, uh, put people uh, getting money from Congress. At ports, and the entire kind of modern immigration system is built from that. Yeah, 
So that's the shortest I could make that. That's that's an admirably <laughs> short, <laughs> mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. admirably short summary. Mm-hmm. Um, Terrell, do you have any thoughts that you want to share on this? So um, I think it's interesting, and this is something that I think we'll we'll get into and, and have some time to spend, think about that when it comes to immigration policy. Um, it really came down to a question of a Chinese Exclusion Act that established that. Um, and the fact that you talk about, you know, German you know, family trying to come here uh, to be farmers, um, what, what first threw me off about that was in 1850 they would come to try and be farmers, and yet there were a population here that could do farm labor for free. Indeed, <laughs> so uh, for sure. good luck finding a job. But <laughs> well, they all settled out in like Wisconsin, and Southern. that's why they still love cheese over there so much. <laughs> I mean, everyone loves cheese, but that's why they're like so crazy about cheese. I love Wisconsin. <laughs> Great place, lots of pretzels. Yeah, uh, awesome. scholars at play is pro pro Wisconsin, anti slavery. I think we can all agree, anti slavery. Well, yeah, we endorse that message. <laughs> um, but the fact that it started as a as a racial identification and to to maybe start to to make some of the parallels between our conversation here and or our conversation about this game and mm-hmm. the text here and some things that are happening now, you know, the 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 question of German families coming here, um, that didn't really register as the immigration concern. Absolutely. It was a very particular type of immigration. Um, so immigration rhetoric is always inherently coded, I think, yeah. is the, the important piece. This is yeah. like bullet point 18 of my two <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Summary. But uh, yeah, I think you're hitting on something very, very accurately. And, and McEwen has a great quote um, kind of right at the start here where he says, um, alala, yes, on page 378, uh, the experience of Chinese exclusion shaped the administrative nuts and bolts of subsequent U.S. immigration policy. Mm-hmm. So like you're saying, when we think about like illegal immigrants coming to the United States now, it's, it's coded always toward, towards Mexico for the most part or, you know, Hispanic people, South mm-hmm. America, Central America. Um, but and, you know, back then, if you were talking about illegal immigrants in 1882, it's only the Chinese. And it's not even illegal. They were just excluded. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so but the basis of what he's saying here is like race becomes part of the nuts and bolts of immigration policy. Right. right. That you mm-hmm. can detect certain uh you know, inherent social characteristics, mm-hmm. meaning race, about people from their physicality, right? right? Mm-hmm. Which is still the foundation of immigration policy mm-hmm. today. Um, that becomes institutionalized in 1882 and mm-hmm. later in 1891 with this thing called the uh, LPC, liable to become a public charge uh, edition. This is bullet point two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but basically that like any inspector who said like this person would become a charge of the state and therefore, you know, is not good for the society Hugely racialized, right? So, sure. uh, you know, particularly these were uh, Irish and Italian immigrants coming to the United States, people who may have had darker skin coming from Italy, you know, southern mm-hmm. Italy or parts of it where mm-hmm. um, certain racial characteristics might have been a little different. They were deemed LPCs way more often than people coming from the more desirable, air quotes, part of Italy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that like, Getting that history in here is really important because it I agree. Shows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> no, I'm I'm kidding. Um, I think seeing that that difference, that that racial difference, or like other sorts of difference, lie at the origin of these of these ritual of these of these bureaucratic procedures, which are largely ritual. And with that word, I'd like to I'd like to transition to the Segway. like the for me the takeaway from this piece. I read the whole thing and actually ended up reading more closely the Chinese Exclusion Act, like the real nitty gritty details of it, because it was just kind of fascinating to read these accounts of how these 
of how those laws developed and what the actual interactions were between immigration officials and people trying to come over. And um, for me, the strong takeaway from McEwen's piece is this idea of ritual. So McEwen is a historian, correct? Yes. Nailed it. Uh, but he sort of borrows this concept of ritual from anthropology and other areas. Like religious studies. I actually okay. looked it up. It was, yes. yeah, it, okay. I, meant, I said anthropology before because I assumed okay. kind of like Victor Turner. Yeah. Or he, yeah. Um, it, um, it, it actually moves from there. Um, and the reason that I know this is I had two courses that were focused on um, ritual from different angles. But the real place where it's getting a lot of traction right now is this thing called performance studies. Exactly. And performance yeah. theory. And like um, McCowan discusses, it's it's trying to take ritual from the very traditional context that we would think of as the religious ritual and think about it in the context of what we see as the everyday. Yeah. Right? Things that are happening all the time. Um, and I think that in part, McCowan is very careful to try and sort of dot make those sort of separations that, you know, yes, the state is a sort of secular enterprise, but it can still do these things that function in a kind of cosmic fashion. Yeah. But I think that many scholars would even take a step further and to say, well, no, the state kind of has its own metaphysical impulse. Yeah. yeah. All right. What's going on. If you want to go the Marx direction, we can do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's just get into uh, the it. The state you know? is the medium through which we understand ourselves and is therefore that's the the, the state remains religious even when it's atheistic. Um, but let's let's go back from that. Yes. And uh, so I, I, I think the like he sort of sets up like that's really important to establish is this um, ritual has this sort of religious understanding. But we we broaden that a little bit. We've broadened that in other fields of study. Um, and McEwen even responds to the the criticism of like, oh, you're using ritual for everything. What does it even mean anymore? Um, and I think the really poignant or sort of powerful um thing that will that is also at the heart of papers please is this idea that we we might often tell a story about bureaucratic process uh as something that's highly uh like scientific management highly rationalized highly efficient but as McEwen sort of shows in this article this process is like anything but efficient Mm -hmm. and uh, as papers please shows to us uh you are constantly fighting against new rules and like different combinations of elements and the whole thing becomes very inefficient. Uh, it becomes very taxing. And so um, the the justification that these these uh, these exclusion acts were very efficient or very uh, effective at controlling immigration, which they weren't, uh, sort of that that doesn't hold any water for McEwen on his on his sort of historical account of the actual how it actually went down. So he poses instead that ritual is. There's this idea, instead of scientific management and rational efficiency, we have efficacious ritual. And so ritual is not about solving problems or resolving them or or getting at some sort of truth about who this person really is that's trying to come into this country. It instead, it's sort of like you mentioned, Terrell, it's asserting like this everyday life experience has some sort of connection to a a broader, he uses the term cosmic order, which I think is good because it preserves a little of that. Uh, that religious aspect, but also just to something greater and, uh, you know, maybe properly ordered global relationships. Um, he has a good quote on 380, uh, or no, 379, that it harmonizes social relations and ideologies mm-hmm. that appear to be in tension in daily life. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think Derek kind of, re- so there's two kind of fundamental tensions in McEwen that ritual is the answer for. And the one is that the increasing inefficiency of bureaucracy in the face of the overwhelming ideal ideology that it, it, bureaucracy is the solution, right, um, to inefficiency. And the other tension is this kind of, I think, really interesting point where he says, uh, 
everyone shared the belief that the world had like strict national and racial boundaries, right? Even to the point where some people in the 1870s and 80s believed that, um, you know, polygenism, right? So people on different continents grew up independently of each other, right? And so that's why white people shouldn't marry black people and, you know, Asians should not marry other people. So like uh, interracial marriage is violating God's law, right? It's like bio, like, and and masked over with a language of this is biologically different, you know, these are, yeah. And so that's, there's an overwhelming belief in that. But also, especially in the United States, uh, in complete tension with an idea of um, civilization or the idea that there are are certain classes of people. And uh, the quote he has here is that, Certain individuals uh, defined by wealth, education, occupation, character had the right to move across natural boundaries because they promoted general well-being. So how these inspectors, you know, uh, mostly just men, you know, middle-aged men who used to work in business maybe, maybe got some law degrees or something like that, uh, also many of whom were not very well educated, um, had to deal with this fundamental tension between um, the idea that People were very harshly and strictly defined in the, in the racial categories, but also that some people weren't. And so the answer is ritual. The answer right. is to not think logically about this, but to think in terms of following a certain set of formalized and deeply inscribed rules on Absolutely. how to live, uh, how to operate in the workplace. And I think that that key word there is formal, formalized. Um, I think that's so – and I think we really – I mean, again, I think – you know, we're describing the article, but I think we're also just talking about papers, please, is that the, the you know, there'll be moments when you have someone, um, like one of the things they, they, like if they're a foreigner and they're moving through, they have like an entry permit that allows them to stay for a certain amount of time. Um, they have to give you a reason for why. And, you know, they'll say, oh, I'm visiting. But the document says uh, it's transit. And you re- question them and say, oh, no, I meant I was, tra- I was in transit. And like, that's a moment where you're like, eh okay, you've matched up to the documents, I'll let you through. Or you say, you know, you, you, can't, you basically can't say no at that point because they've, they've said the wrong thing. But um, it's a little peek. So that's one peek into a moment where you're like, oh, they might just be BSing me. Like this has nothing to do with what they're actually doing. It's just to match the documents. Um, or there's other moments when they'll just be very frank and like when there's a change in documentation that you need to cross the border, like, oh, uh, why did you guys change this uh, documentation? I had to pay extra money to get this this documentation, right? So it's just like a very frank, like, we both know that this is a highly formalized thing. The content isn't so important. And as long as everything matches up correctly, I'm going to get to go through. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that's that's something that McEwen really allows us to talk about there. Yeah, he has a great section on, uh, they're called brokers or kind of, you know, well-educated Chinese uh, um kind of managers over in China who would funnel uh, uh, migrants to the United States. And they said, you know, the migrants would always say like, okay, so like we need to bribe the officials. We do all these things. It's like, no, all you have to do is just fit into their silly rules. You know, mm. um, you have to like follow certain codes, always be like quiet and, uh, and unassuming, uh, you know, put down that you're a merchant, make sure you don't have like dirt under your fingernails. Like these really, really strange and peculiar rules that McEwen says like, these are unintelligible unless uh-huh. you think about ritual, right? Exactly. Like it, it makes no sense for, in the case of Papers, Please, for you to like have to have, you know, all of these documents with all the seals and, you know, have an ID card if you're this thing and you're from this place and you have all these things. Yeah. It's a like heavy bureaucratic load that serves a very inefficient purpose. Exactly. But the solution is that like, that's how it works, you know? Right. <laughs> Bureaucracy is inherently contradictory. That's how so it we works. need something to solve it. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, 
one of the things in Papers, Please, I think Derek and I had talked about at one point, was there's someone who comes up, and, and I think he says, uh, glory to Art Stubska, and it's just has nothing. And you're just looking at him, and it's like... <laughs> glory to Art Stutzka. <laughs> yeah, what you doing? And then it's like, all right, go get a passport and then come back. And then comes back with this, like, awfully handwritten, <laughs> like, like, what are you doing? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. It was like the running joke of the series, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and his his name is Georgie. And he eventually, I mean, I don't know if you guys got to this part. There's different paths through this game. We could have mentioned yes. that. There's different endings and different ways to sort of proceed through it. I died super quickly. Help, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, helping certain people and not helping certain people will change your story. But Georgie, Georgie finally gets the right papers and then eventually starts coming through with drugs. And he's like, yep, uh, I have drugs on me, so uh, you just want to let me through and I'll give you 10 bucks or something like that. So um, even Georgie actually ends up being kind of like a little dark. Mm. But um, mm. I'm sorry I interrupted See, your, nuance, Crewy, <laughs> nuance. <Yeah. laughs> well, I don't want to throw too much shade at him. <laughs> well, I think Georgie's just such an interesting moment yeah. because in how you respond to him or how you handle him, uh, I think it gets into the question um, – and this isn't something that we've necessarily read, but I think it's a general video game term that's worth talking about in this game. Uh, because I don't know if this game got the, this isn't a game, there are no points, backlash per se. Yeah. Um, but what defines a quote-unquote win state in the game? Right. Because yeah. there's only a handful of like good endings right. that you could call winning, if you mm-hmm. will. Um, and maybe, I think some might define the winning as kind of defined by that optimal place where you're following the rules, you're not getting too many fines, you're not losing because, you know, you're breaking rules, but you are managing to bring enough money for your family. But I think in moments like that where you get to look at this, like, you know, straggler coming through with nothing and get to tell him no, yeah. you're, you're losing, that that, there's something about that where I think it kind of confirms that ritual role of, mm-hmm. you know, you don't belong here. Go home. Like I'm, kind of, I'm curious as to what a player's reaction is yeah. to that sort of moment. Like, yeah. do you kind of feel like, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. I'm following my rules. I'm, I shooed you off. Like, what's the, what's the, the response there? And maybe that has something to do with what it is that, um, how this ritual question is meeting, um, Chui's mm. um, crit- criticism. Yeah, and I think, um, I think that's a, this is a little, you know, I think we should just jump to this right now because it's very relevant. Is the question of of whether or not there's moments to resist this this ritual, this sort of process that you go through, and I think I, I think that I think you're absolutely right. To I didn't even think about this before, but that first moment when you meet Georgie, where he gives you nothing, and like this is fairly early in the game, so you're not super well into the process, or you don't know it super well yet. You're not you know you're still developing how to like where all the where is Antegria in relation to United Fed and that kind of stuff. Um, but he comes to you and gives you no documentation. And so for me, I was like, oh, what do I do? Um, oh, right, rules. Uh, he needs a passport, of course. Like, he needs something. Uh, and and that's, that's a moment where, and this is, a, I, I just wanted to mention this before we move on from McEwen too much, is that, uh, like, Georgie confronts you as something that doesn't fit in the archive. He doesn't fit into the the filing drawer. He doesn't fit into the system because he doesn't present you with any documentation. And that makes his identity unknown and bizarre. And it also just sort of disturbs the whole process that's that's trying to go on smoothly. And I think, um, you know, we could say this to Kravainia's uh, point that this game is very monolithic and maybe it's political position. And this may not actually be against that. It may very well be 
you know, we could have the conversation about whether or not it's sort of nuanced or not. But this is a moment where Pope is allowing you to confront the fact that, oh, that's right. I've been, you know, I've been wrapped up in this system and there are people out there and like right. if this doesn't fit into the system or it, maybe this doesn't tell you he's a person, but it, it does it doesn't fit. And it, you have to like take a moment and step outside of that efficient efficient headspace and go, oh, I have to deal with this in a different way. I have to sort of have some agency of my own a little bit. So. Or not. Uh, well, right. Yeah, I was going to say my response was every time he came back, I was like, awesome, free $10. You know? <laughs> I was like, I can decline him because he's going to put, put some BS on my plate and I get, I get 10 bucks. True. <laughs> Am I a terrible person? <laughs> you, no, uh, you know, I, only you can answer this. No. Um, so... So I think, yeah, just just touching on that last bit that McEwen sort of uh, has this, this idea that the files contain the truth. Yeah. It's not in the bodies of the people. And the only reason that the bodies become – the bodies are important, but they're not important. Like they, they only become important insofar as they do or do not match the documentation. Yeah. So that it's not like the bodies are left out of this equation, but they must confer, conform to the documents that you have. Um, one, one really important part there. So um, – at this point, I, I'm cool with just sort of touching, coming back to the game a little bit and just sort of reflecting a little bit more on some of its particularities. We've already touched on a few, but um, Kyle, you you have something you'd like to start with. <laughs> I wasn't like frantically gesturing at my notes. Not at all. Uh, <laughs> this is why we're a podcast and not like a YouTube thing. <laughs> exactly. You know? um, yeah, I think the, uh, so w- one of Hui's points is that um, the uh, the game is fun. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think this is actually kind of my strongest contention with him is I, yeah. I, 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 well, I mean, I agree the game is super fun. Um, but he <laughs> said that was a problem. Right. He said, like, uh-huh. a game like this should never be fun. It should be horrifying and it should uh, always make you realize the kind of terrors of, like, you know, border policing of, you know, the regulation of the state. And I disagree. I think a game like this actually is the perfect example of why video games should be. Yes. Uh, part of the kind of critical uh, academic analysis because uh, the thing a video game offers you that uh, a book doesn't, a movie doesn't, is interactivity, right? And in the case of this, as a border control officer, as a immigration uh, inspector, uh, interactivity is 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 everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can read a book about some guy reading documents, right? Uh, but if you're actually there, like in the booth reading documents, you get maybe, you know, 10% into the headspace, 5%, but a little more into the headspace of that person, right? And so I got into the game and I started doing everything. Like I said, I tried to be like a little nuanced. Like if I had some penalties, I'd let some people go. And then I, by the, by the time I looked back, like two or three hours later, I, I was like, this is horrible. Like it was horrifying to me how routine and fun everything had become, right? Yeah. So maybe like a little meta horror, horrifying yeah,ness um, horror uh, being that, the routinization, the fun of the game is actually what's horrifying yeah. because you realize, hey, maybe that like, you know, U.S. Border Patrol person working on the U.S.-Mexico border who were like all a bunch of racists, you know, they're just targeting brown people. Um, actually, for them, it's just become routine, right? That like certain racial and physical characteristics become inscribed as meaning you're not allowed in the United States. This does not let people off for being racist. This does not say that the U.S. does not need to reform immigration laws, right? But that we can't blame... Uh, people for problems for institutional problems. Yeah, right. Absolutely, a yeah. lot. We can blame them a little. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, Terrell, you and I were talking about this a little bit um, a while ago, but uh, just just the way, and this is just to kind of echo what you've said, Kyle. But um, this the 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 need for 
what I what I've said on this podcast, which is this idea that games need to critique themselves in some way. I mean, I think I think they can also serve as a sort of powerful experience, like you were talking about, Kyle. Where I, I feel like you get more than five or ten percent into that headspace. I feel like you get pretty far <laughs> like into that. Like eighteen percent? No, I think like I think 22? we're talking seventy-five. Okay, 80, wow. Because um, I, I think I mean like. The documents you it, it the game the subtitle of the game, uh, which I only saw on Wikipedia and I think is fantastic. Uh, oh darn, I've lost it. Oh no, a, where is it? Uh, Papers, please. A dystopian please. document thriller. Exactly, a dystopian document thriller, and uh, you know I think I think it probably does give you some insight into that sense of like focus on these documents and like uh, like a, a way like you absorb you absorb yourself in that process. Um, and so just, just this idea that, that you can experience that process and then have a conversation maybe like this one or like a, any other kind of conversation. It doesn't have to be on a podcast. But where this that experience serves as the object that we all sort of discuss. Like we've all read a book. We've all played this game. And now we can work through that. So like the, the game serves as a great jumping off point for the more important discussion of what do we like? How do we deal with the fact that people kind of want to throw themselves into processes? That it can feel good to be going through your process, doing mm-hmm. it well, executing mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. Um, and that. But that at the same time, that can have some really bad unintended consequences. I think that's where Hui um, and um, I put some French on that, and that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying our best, you know. Hui, sorry, I didn't even know that was right. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's this, okay. This this this. this Distinguished scholar, far more distinguished than myself. Exactly. Um, I think that's where the review and McEwen's article meet very well, is that essentially what happens in interacting with the mechanics and developing that sort of play style is that eventually that sort of cosmic set or order set of relations come to fruition, right? You find yourself willing to engage with them and accept them, and you know, whether it's Georgie and however it is that you respond to Georgie, you know, you see Georgie in, with respect to his relationship to the state and the fact that he has no passport. And that all kind of makes those things a bit natural. And your willingness to fall within them for the confirmation of, okay, this is my role and this is what it is that I want to do or how it is that I want to be is better than not having that, right? It answers questions. It provides a sense of um, order and structure, whether or not that order or structure is um, – Authentic, perhaps. Yeah, and you know, questions of authenticity are sticky too. And I, and I think that we should, yeah, we should just, yeah. I'm. I, I think it's fine. I think it's fine that it's that it has a little bit of a difference, but that like it can still it can still start that important discussion. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else you guys want to touch on about the game specifically? I have like one last thing that we should probably just that we would should mention. But we we talked about race. And how, like, race is so fundamental to, like, as, as McEwen shows us, it's at the very foundation of immigration policy. Um, one thing that, uh, was it Kyle or, or Terrell? I can't remember. One of you were mentioning how this, well, both of you were talking about how, how there, there's a sort of, like, um, a distancing from reality by placing this in Arstoska, which gives you the benefit of sort of, like, if, it, if this was the U.S. and Mexico, there'd be so much emotion wrapped up in this that the game couldn't do its function. But at the same time, it also erases, and now I'm just I'm rearticulating what both of you guys said. But um, it, it it erases any potential for addressing what's at the foundation of some real circumstances. So that like 
race is so fundamental to U.S. immigration policy and something that has literally just happened with Donald Trump, religion is now at the center of a new sort of not immigration policy, but edict or command or some sort of like broad, vague sort of direction in, in the way that things should be pursued. Mm-hmm. Um, very, I think, very similar, just sorry, really quick, yeah, very yeah, similar course. historically again, right, to the 1880s. The problem with, uh, you know, Irish and Italian immigrants uh, was partly racialized, but it, it was hugely religion. You know, they believed yes. in, they, they de- de- declaimed popery, right? Like that was the problem right. with mm-hmm. these people. Uh, a lot of Jews were immigrating from Eastern Europe as well, right? So mm-hmm. These kind of essential characteristics they believed was religion. So right. I guess we are making America great again by going back to the 1880s. You know when people <laughs> died at the ripe old age of childbirth. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, and this may be a bit of a political claim to make. Do it. Ooh. <laughs> um, but I think uh, I'm gonna rely on the historian in the room to back me up on this. Is that in many ways this is kind of a um, expansion of the territory of what we might consider. Um, within the bounds of America and within the bounds of whiteness. So, for example, you know, at one point, Jews were considered a threat, right? And if we think about the initial term, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, you know, eventually there are many books how the Irish became white, sure. how the Jews became white. Right. And now that those have been secured within its boundaries or the borders of that identity category, now what's outside of it is um, that sort of the that which is not even within the realms of Christianity. Right, yeah. exactly. It's a yeah. whole kettle of fish, and you're totally right. <laughs> um, there's a huge, like the whiteness literature, yeah, mm-hmm. it yeah. is huge in history, mm-hmm. and uh, it kind of fell out of fashion in the past few years, but mm-hmm. I, I think a kind of a really interesting new addition to it lately has been the work of my advisor, Paul Kramer, um, <laughs> <laughs> who's, <laughs> who's arguing that, like, obviously race is super important, but we have to think more holistically about, like, religion as well, about, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, class... And that, like, the, the idea of focusing entirely on race has divorced us from these more kind of basic uh, principles, which also, I think, leads to what, you know, builds off of what McEwen says in a way that, like, certain Chinese people were allowed in, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was because they were of a certain class and they were mm-hmm. allowed in. And so uh, these two conflicting ideals, right, that there are harshly defined races, but also some people, wealthy people, smart people, students, you know, uh, professors, should be allowed to violate those laws, Right. right? Yeah, I think um, I think that's going to do it for us. I think that was a uh, you know obviously just as a disclaimer, we're not uh, sh- shaking our finger at Lucas Pope there at the end. I don't think any of us mean not to do that. Um, this is just a, something that's so important for us to mention when we're talking about this game. Right, it's now. room to think. Exactly, um, exactly. Room to explore. Room to make some comments. Uh, please tweet at us. Yeah. Give us more things to think about. Continue the conversation. Yeah. I'd be willing to get into some Twitter battles. Yeah. I, I, I don't have a lot of time, but, you know. Let's... You always got time for Twitter battles. Come at him. Come at him. Yeah, come at me. And come at Kyle, too. <laughs> because he doesn't think Destiny is a good game. You know I was going to come back to We brought beef. him back. <laughs> this is a vegetarian. There's no beef zone. Um, so... Uh, it was a mistake buying Destiny, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> We're going to, you know, I actually played Destiny over the break. I'm sorry. And didn't really enjoy it that much. I did do the racing game where you get on the little scooter <laughs> no, you, thing. What? Stop! <laughs> Stop it! Stop it! You know what was really good, though, was Titanfall 2. I also played that over the break. That game was fun. It's like you have to, like, you know. Sneak it. I just you took it You took back. something away, but then you gave it right back. Yeah. So, okay. Titanfall 2 is good. It is. It was Probably fun. better, but. 
So speaking, what's in your system, Speaking Derek? of which, exactly. <laughs> perfect. Uh, our last little little quick segment here, what's in your system? So this is just uh, what are we playing, reading, thinking about, talking about, listening to in uh, in relation to games. Um, Kyle, what's I'll, in yeah, your system? Yeah, so um, I, I've stopped playing World of Warcraft, so that's oh. like a big thing for okay. me emotionally. Yeah, I mean, a little, a little, just in case. <laughs> I got a free month, you know? Just say no. I know. <laughs> just I, say I, like, no. I, yeah. I broke the, the, the addiction, you know? I got a free month, and I stopped playing at the end of the free month, and that was pretty big for me. And okay. so, yeah, so I started playing this new game called Endless Legend on mm. Steam, uh, and just as a, maybe like a little preview for our next podcast, if that's cool with everybody. Yeah. Um, Endless Legend is uh, kind of like a Civ clone, um, except... It's based in this mythical world called Origa, and it's got rave reviews. It's wonderfully designed. I've been really loving it so far. Um, but something they uh, all the reviews say is that Enda's Legend is able to be maybe not better than Civ, but kind of like on par with Civ because it's not constrained by history, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which like hurt my soul as a historian. <laughs> but that the uh, the kind of the historical aspects of Civ. Oh, also we're gonna do Civ Five on the next podcast. I exactly. <laughs> Uh, but that the historical aspects of Civ Five actually held it back from becoming a, re- a truly great game. So, a little teaser there. But yeah. it's a great game. You can pick it up on Steam. I think it's 20 bucks. It's yeah. a great game. Yeah. Terrell, what's in your system? So, what's in my system is actually not in my system. It has not been in my PS4 since November. Uh-huh. Because there was this thing called finals. And then there's this thing <laughs> called moving back in and getting back into the semester. Yeah. But I hope to get it back in the system very soon. It is Dishonored 2. Mm. Um, and particularly, I could rant about Dishonored um, and stealth mechanics and everything like that. Because that's very up my alley and my interests for a variety of reasons. But the particular thing that I'm interested in right now with Dishonored 2 is the fact that there are two characters... There is Corvo, the character coming back from the original one. And then I believe it's his daughter, or generally daughter surrogate of sorts, Emily. And they bring back some of the mechanics of the sort of special powers that you have to sneak around. So Corvo still has his blink ability, which is the sort of movement capacity. But then they switch to, for Emily, they give her slightly different powers. So the one that is like the most obvious is that instead of being able to blink to teleport, uh, Emily has this ability called Far Reach, and I've started a playthrough as Emily. And the major difference is that Far Reach is essentially, it's not a teleporting ability, it's more like a hook shot. Mm. So whereas when um, when Corvo blinks, he teleports, right? He disappears in space, and you kind of see him move, but like he's kind of a ghostly position. No one kind of gets a hold of him. You, you can't really see him as he's moving. So that gives you a little less limited visibility. But with Emily, she literally physically moves. So if you move with far reach through somebody's you know line of sight, they will see you, and right. that's sort of a detection, and you have to deal with that. Um, but the other thing about it is because it's more like a hook shot, there's upgrades that can allow you to bring objects closer to you. You can eventually grab people up and bring them closer to you and perform executions or takedowns or whatever. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, amongst the differences between these two characters and their various abilities, they have some that are similar, they have some that are different. Why make those differences? What are you trying to make, the, what is going on with these two different playstyles? So you have standard levels, but there's two different ways to make it through a game. And what about the questions of age, of gender, gender of yeah. whatever differences are going on? Yeah. And maybe it's not that they're trying to say that there's something more feminine about um, Far Reach versus Blink. <laughs> but there's something, 
yeah, they, these are these are choices that they made, and they made them for reasons. And yeah. maybe they speak to something, or maybe they create gendered effects mm-hmm. if they're not essentially gendered themselves. Sure, I think that'd make a great article. So I would yeah. love to read that. That if actually you want does to write sound that. Okay. I will yeah. try. The new Assassin's Creed Syndicate is also like that. You can choose between yes. a man and a woman. Uh, but of course, by the end of Syndicate, like both are just like uber powered gods. So like mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. You can right. play as either. But mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a, mm-hmm. like a new th- an experiment. Yeah, kind of I, for a lot I, of big I, I don't, don't want to push us too far over the edge. But that sort of upgrade mentality. There's a recent video by Errant Signal. You know, fanboy for life. Hype. Um, where he talks about Fallout Four and he discusses the sort of upgrade. Uh, you know, ideologies within the Fallout series. We'll leave that there because maybe we'll do an episode. <laughs> Derek, go. I've talked too much. Double spoilers. Okay, yeah. Um, so I've got a couple things in my system. I, I I sort of stepped. I was away from my main gaming system over the over the break, uh, but I've gotten back. And so Glitter Mitten Grove, aka Frog Fractions Two, came out. Uh, yeah. So I, for those of you who are not familiar with Frog Fractions or Frog Fractions Two. Um, Frog Fractions was this browser game which looked like a sort of like math learning game but which becomes this bizarre sort of surreal uh, like ironic take on a bunch of different game genres. So like you're this frog and then you go underneath and you get all the currency you could ever need for the game you were just playing and then you blast off into space and then you're in a court and then you're in this text-based adventure. It's this bizarre... If You you guys are looking at me like you never heard of this before. Yeah, no. Oh my God. Like oh my God, how have right I never now, talked Derek. about this before? Frog Fractions is amazing. I gotta write this um, down. Yeah, this is fantastic. So check that out if you haven't. Um, I did just spoil it for anyone who hasn't played it yet, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, it's still, it's still really worth checking out. But anyway, uh, the, there was a quote unquote sequel to this game released, uh, and, and the, there was a Kickstarter for it. And the, the guy, Twinbeard is the name of the company. It's just a guy and I can't remember his name right now, but, um, sort of like said, Oh, uh, give me money. I'm going to make a game and then I'm going to release it under some other title. And I'm not going to tell you what Frog Fractions 2 is. You have to find it. So, like, there was this huge ARG of people going through all these crappy Steam titles and, like, is this Frog Fractions 2? Is this Frog Fractions 2? And they finally found it in this game uh, in December called Glitterman Grove. This and guy you, sounds awesome. It is. It's, it's super cool. I mean, just reading about it. There's a great article on Waypoint by Patrick Klepek sort of summing up the whole ARG about it. So check that out. Um, really good. So I've been, I've been working through that a little bit. Um, I've been playing Overwatch again a lot. Uh, which is just like I got back into it, and it's just back in. It's in my Blizzard system. Blizzard knows the way to our hearts. That's yeah, all I'm they saying. really do. They Necromancer, sure do. Answer, please. Yeah, please, so soon. Please. And please. then, <laughs> and then the the fi- the only the other thing I wanted to sort of shout out is this game that I played very briefly. It was a game on itch.io, which is sort of like an indie platform for those of you who aren't familiar. It's a great uh, place where creators you can just upload your game and just put it up for free or for a little bit of money. This one's by a guy named uh, Nick. Kaman, Kaman, K-A-M-A-N. Uh, the game is called This Is Fine, uh, and it's based on that sort of cartoon dog thing where he's sipping coffee in a burning <laughs> kitchen. And it like that dog breaks my heart. Yeah. And if you want to shed some tears a little bit in a good way, uh, play this game. It is I, I, like I, it, it's not gonna like it, it was like it was such a good response to how I was feeling after the election, uh, and it is one of those kinds of. It's a game that not only takes care of you a little bit, but sort of t- tells you to take a moment and make sure that you're you're okay on your on your own. That's it's like a it's like a little bit of a call to to some self care. Um, you know, obviously being active is really important right now. Uh, you know, 
never has been more important. But at the same time, you you don't gain anything by keeping yourself in this hyper uh, alerted state of constantly checking news, and that's just going to wear you out. So if you're looking for something to sort of relax a little bit and just take your mind off things for just a little bit, I would recommend This Is Fine by Nick Kamen on itch.io. That's going to do it for us. Um, if you want to, if you want to get at us and on Twitter or even send us an email, you can check us out. Um, the the scholars at play Twitter at scholars at play, um, no spaces or underscores. Our email is scholars at play podcast at gmail.com. Again, any questions, just comments. We're not going to like call you out in our next episode, but if you do pose a good question, we'd love to we'd love to discuss it in our next in our next episode. So I will call people out. Kyle is going to go to your house and fight you. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I was thinking more, you know, intellectually evisceration, but some reason discourse. Yeah. (laughs) Intellectual sparring. Right, yeah, a little bit of sparring, some sort of sparring. Um, Kyle's Twitter, he's E underscore Kyle underscore Romero. Uh, that's at Twitter. Um, Terrell at Black Socrates. I am at digital underscore Derek. Feel free to reach out to any of us. I want to thank the Curb Center for Art, Enterprise, and Public Policy at Vanderbilt University for providing support equipment and the space and all the time here, especially Jay Clayton for helping out with that. Um, the Haystack program for helping make this project possible. Again, Ed Chang and his work on the Critical Gaming Project for sort of inspiring the format of this. And, and, and I'd also like to shout out uh, Visager. Uh, Visager? V-I-S? Visager? Visager is Maybe? way better. I, I think that might like be visage? it. Visager? Visager. It's twitter.com slash Music. Um, for the use of his freely available song, The Plateau at Night, which is our our intro and our outro song, which you will hear soon. Uh, We will see you next time. We're going to be talking about Civ V, so uh, keep in tune for that, and we will see you next time. Bye, guys. Take it easy. See ya. See ya.